So in the previous chapter, the Lord is um, rebuking Judah, the remaining two tribes in the south, because they're looking to Egypt for protection and strength. The Assyrians are coming, and ultimately, eventually, they are going to take Judah in the south, as they've taken Israel in the north, and Judah is in a panic. And rather than turning their hearts to the Lord, uh, they're looking to make military alliances in order to help themselves. And uh, that actually continues in chapter 31. It takes uh, a slight shift in what it is that the Lord has to say, but uh, it's a continuation of that same message. You know, woe to those who look to Egypt and not the Lord. So in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 31, the Lord continues by saying, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horses because they are very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. So, you know, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. Isaiah is confronting Judah uh, for two sins in this case. Uh, one, they are trusting Egypt and their military, and God is saying that's that's a sin. You've you've violated my relationship with you. You know, you're not going to search the scriptures or find it in the Ten Commandments. You know, thou shalt not trust in Egypt or something like that. Um, I I word it that way because there are so many things in life that you know aren't spelled out plainly like that but we turn our hearts towards them. You know, anytime somebody comes to me and begins with, you know, as a Christian, is it okay if I, you know, A, B, C, I'm, you know, usually quick to just say, I think you already know the answer to that. If, if you have already got that entanglement in your heart where you would even have to raise the question, then, you know, probably that's because the Holy Spirit has been prompting you regarding this. Well, I don't find it anywhere. Right. Same here. You don't find, you know, the specific statement in the Ten Commandments or anything like that. They shouldn't you know, rely upon Egypt for military strength. But, you know, the, the prophet is confronting all of this. Second thing is that they're not trusting in God. We say, isn't that the same thing? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. There are occasions where the Lord might say as... Israel or we as a people are trusting in him now I want you to also reach out for help from those people over there so it isn't you know so much that it's implicitly wrong to trust in Egypt as it is they're not trusting God and because they're not and they're in trouble and in need of help and fearful now they're turning to uh, the military prowess of Egypt. So he's confronting them because trusting what they can see, the chariots and you know their great numbers. He even specifically says that because they are many. You know, so that, you know they they're looking in that you know sense of oh we can see how this is going to help us. And they're trusting in the horse and the horsemen because they're strong. I mean you send heavy horses in against you know, men on foot infantry and the heavy horses are going to win every time. So they're thinking, oh, you know, military prowess. 
And God is seeing right through all of that and saying, you know, there are things you don't see that are way more powerful than what you can see. You know, specifically referring to himself and, and what he's capable of. They're pacing, you know, placing their trust in the wrong things. The idea that you know the just will live by faith, you know, not by sight, is where they should be functioning. He makes that statement there at the end, nor seek the Lord. In verse one, you know, they 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 have abandoned their trusting in the Lord. <clears throat> Psalm twenty, verse seven, we even at times sing the song. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. You know, that, that is where our strength is. That's what we rely upon. That's what we should be looking to for our you know, protection and provision. So then we come to verse 2, and he talks to the Lord uh, being mightier than the Egyptians. And he says, yet he also is wise and will bring disaster. You know, he's speaking of the Lord and will not call back his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the help of those who work iniquity. Now the Egyptians are men and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, both he who helps will fall and he who is helped will fall down. They all will perish together. This is, uh, you know, a great calamity that the Lord is going to bring in this uh, circumstance. You know, yet He also is wise and will bring the disaster. So, in their minds, Judah can find reasons to trust Egypt, but they don't seem to be able to find reasons to trust the Lord. I, I think every one of us uh, can know what it's like to be that short-sighted. Regardless of what we've been through, regardless of what the Lord's done in our lives, we get into the crisis, and all we can focus on is the crisis and the earthly things. You know, some of us are, you know, quick to just fix our focus on the Lord and not have those types of struggles, but, you know, we tend to end up staring right at whatever's in our hands or whatever's at our feet, and, and that becomes our concentration. And the Lord has strong words against that. You know, say, you know, I guess it's not a modern statement, but you know the, the idea that you know we've heard, well, you know, what am I, chopped liver? You know, like, like God is right there, capable of taking care of their circumstances, and instead they're rushing around to all of these horribly flawed things. You know, as I said in last week's study, you know, Egypt has not been any friend to Judah. You know, they previously were enslaved there. They've had all kinds of military problems and interactions with Egypt. And now, I mean, you're going to turn to your enemies. It doesn't make any sense. And yet, we see that repeatedly. So, Isaiah has to remind them that the Lord is much more trustworthy than the men of Egypt. Meaning that same, you know, the Egyptians are men and not God. Why would you turn to them? When you have God at your disposal, why would you trust in something so incredibly inferior. It's just an unthinkable measurement between these two things and their capabilities. So that statement, now the Egyptians are men, not God. Their horses are flesh, not spirit. Judah's wrong to trust in Egypt. They will 
collapse when God stretches out his hand, is what he says. You know, Egypt's going to collapse and their enemies are going to collapse. And, and in the end, even Israel is going to fall down in their weakness and in their worship. They're going to come to that realization of God's trustworthiness in the moment. So now the Lord defends Mount Zion, beginning in verse 4. For thus the Lord has spoken to me. As a lion roars, as the young lion over his prey, when a multitude of shepherds is summoned against him, he will not be afraid of their voice, nor be disturbed by their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight for Mount Zion and for its hill, like birds flying about. So the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. Defending, he will also deliver it. Passing over, he will preserve it. Um, many years ago, I was with uh, um, a game warden on Pushaw Lake outside Bangor, and um, I just happened to notice uh, that there was uh, an eagle, and there were two small birds that were uh, repeatedly what looked like landing on its back, and from you know, things I had heard, I was a young man, I was looking at that thinking like, oh, this is an adult eagle training the young how to fly. And uh, the warden had his field glasses and said, no, no, look, look at this. And he focuses in for me and shows me. And what it is is two very small birds driving an eagle away. The eagle probably was disturbing their nest. And, I mean, you, you think about that. You know, some sparrow, <laughs> some small little blackbird, some robin just going after an eagle, like an eagle. I mean, the, the, the fighting prowess of an eagle is incredible. You know, one of their uh, most effective kills is uh, to come from high and behind. And as they drop in on their prey in flight, they roll over right at their back and from underneath grab that bird with their talons through the chest and continue the roll. So now that bird is upside down with, you know, six, eight puncture wounds right through its chest cavity, and the eagle's just flying with this, you know, nearly dead carcass underneath it now. So from above and from behind, you know, swooping in, and just before it collides with a bird, the eagle will roll over, and as it passes underneath, grab that bird, finish the roll, and now the eagle's upright. That's some serious fighting skill. That, you, you know, just, you know, tear something apart. Like these little birds attacking. He gives us the big picture of the, the roaring lion over its prey. You're not going to walk up and just take the lunch out of a lion's mouth. You know, there's some part of you that's going to stay with a lion. You know what I'm saying? You're not, you're not going to come back whole from such an experience. You can go, okay, yeah, God, right. You know, tremendous, fierce. You know, even the idea of a bird defending its young. It's not, it's not going to have any thought about how big or how fierce the Assyrians are. God has no fear, right? We've seen, we've known, maybe you've even been you know, in situations where your children are in danger, your children are somehow threatened, and you'll step right into harm's way in order to deliver them. You have no thought. And that's, you know, that's the way the Lord is with an nation. The, you know, the, the approach that Judah is taking is almost like, you know, does God really care about us? 
Is he really going to come do anything about our circumstance? And what the Lord is saying here in this moment is, I'll throw myself right in harm's way. I'm going to crouch over you in a protective manner as such that nobody would ever want to mess with me. And even if they have skills and abilities to fight back against me, I'm so determined that like a little bird, I'm just going to attack. There's not going to be anything that will keep me from doing that. The preservation of the Lord. Now, in verse 6, he makes this statement. Return to him against whom the children of Israel have deeply revolted. Come back to God. Like, stop this. Why are you going to Egypt? Stop it. Return to him. And capital H there on that pronoun. You know, they've revolted against God. For in that day, every man shall throw away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, sin, which your own hands have made for yourselves. The things that have captivated and caused them to stumble and fall, they will just get rid of them. They will not want them or desire them at all. I remember years ago, a woman coming into uh, Calvary Chapel in Bangor when we were there, and there was a dramatic conversion. She was deeply involved in Buddhism, and all she wanted to do, you know, many other things, but she wanted her house purged out. All of the stuff gone. Every every idol of Buddha, everything pertaining to Buddha, anything that had to do, you know, with you know the drug use and all of the sinful things, just get it out of my life. Once she had come to the Lord, just purge all of that stuff out was the desire. I mean, there were other struggles that came, you know, for her in time, but you know, in, in the very beginning, there was just that sense of purging like i gotta get rid of all this stuff maybe we understand what that's about you know that repulsion with the thing that captivated us kept us we were so infatuated with and once surrendering to the lord you just can't wait to have it be gone then assyria shall fall by a sword not of a man there's gonna be a destruction for Israel's enemies, for Judah's enemy. But it's not going to be because of Egypt and their military strength. The sword, not of mankind, shall devour him. But he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall become forced labor. He shall cross over to his stronghold for fear, returning back to his land. And that's exactly what happened. And his princes shall be afraid of the banner, says the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. You know, the uh, the banner, the standard that they would go into battle with. You know, at this point, uh, the Assyrians are not intimidated by the banner that the armies of Israel would carry. It's almost like, you know, if they see Israel's banner wagging in the wind over there where their armies are encamped. It's almost like an attraction. Like the Assyrian army would turn towards it and plunge in upon it in order to capture it, destroy it, conquer it, take it as their own. Now it's going to be the sort of thing after the Lord has dealt with them that to see you know, Judah, Israel's banner, they would turn and flee. It's a small country. It's It's a... It's a, you know, little people. It's, it's an inconsequential army that is 
you know, these two remaining tribes of Judah. The idea that this world power of Assyria would turn on its heels and run away from the banners of Israel is really quite remarkable. The Lord is going to turn the tables when the people return to him, when their hearts go back to him. And of course, you know, this is all in reference to 2 Kings 19, verse 35, where it's describing how the Lord went into the camp of the Assyrians and one angel of the Lord killed 185,000 men in a single night. I mean, when, when you think about that much death and uh, how it seemingly just occurred you know, as they slept, you wake up in the morning and your whole army is dead. And that's going to really change your mind about the country that you're going to war with, especially when you've stood at their gates and mocked their God. You know, the Shennacherib had come and made all these great proclamations about God, you know, defying him, daring him. <laughs> you do that, wake up the next morning and all your army's dead, you might you know, realize that there's a grievous error that you've committed in the circumstance. So, moving into chapter 2, uh, interesting things here uh, to look at. Uh, I said 232, the aftermath of Jerusalem's deliverance, a king is to come, is what uh, this chapter begins with. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule with justice. Now, if your mind, as good Bible students, immediately launches forward to the Messiah, Jesus, and that king that is to come. I want you to notice in verse 1 that the K on the king is lowercase. Okay, So we're, we're specifically talking about a king of Judah. This, is, this has application to Jesus, the coming Messiah, the king of kings. And we do need to look at that. But this is the promise of the Lord to Judah to the nation of Israel that while you've gone through these horrible, tormentuous things, I'm going to give you a king of righteousness. Someone that's going to rule over you and give you good things that uh, you'll be able to be blessed by. So, that, you know, it's an additional promise. Victory is coming and also a good, it'd be a drag if you were, you know, uh, wondering, okay, we're, we're going to be given victory. The prophet has said, God has said through the prophet, we're going to have this victory. We don't need to rely upon Egypt. And boom, now it's come. But then you're thinking, oh, good night. Are we just going to have another evil king that shows up and rules and drags us further down in this situation? God has given that secondary promise that you're also going to have a good king once this is done. You're going to have a righteous King. Now, there is some discussion, and it's legitimate discussion, and I absolutely do not mean to create any confusion, but it's kind of confusing as to what we're dealing with. So I'll try to sort of launch us into this, and hopefully we'll come out the other side knowing things a little clearer. Uh, the first of which is Isaiah chapter 32 and 33, most scholars believe it was actually written before Isaiah chapter 30 and 31. So if you're thinking, oh, I don't like that, that's confusing. It is a little confusing, but here's the premise. 
there are a number of things that are said in 32 and 33 that seem to pertain to Hezekiah, the king. Who, you know, you're going to get a king. Future tense, okay? Well, during the circumstances that are transpiring during 30 and 31, Hezekiah is already on the throne. So the fact that, you know, uh, Isaiah is saying this is future tense, you're going to receive this, and the way it's written seems to mean that it was is written maybe long before Isaiah chapter 30 and 31, but because of their similarities regarding the circumstances, and there are specific circumstances regarding Assyria, they were put together this way. Might have been better had you know it almost gone like chapter 32 and 33, and then chapter 30 and then 31, if, if we wanted to look at it that way. Um, there are those in the circumstance that say, no, no, no. Uh, the reason that's confusing is because it's actually referring uh, to Josiah, which is Hezekiah's great-grandson, which makes it even more confusing because <laughs> that's further beyond the situation. So however we want to view it, there is an earthly righteous king that's going to come and going to minister to them, and a number of things are being spoken of. Now, throughout this description, as I said, several things reach out to the Messiah. They ultimately have their fulfillment in Jesus Christ alone. But it, it's more that the prophet is telling us about this king, lowercase k, that's going to come and rule over Israel or Judah. And he is a type of the Messiah that is to come. So I said it was confusing. Have I confused you enough? Suffice it to say, they're getting the promise that there's a, a righteous king who is coming, and that righteous king is an image and a type of the King Jesus, Messiah, who will come in their far distant future. If you uh, consider a couple of things uh, in this setting here, uh, 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 2, it says, Josiah did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. So in that regard, Josiah, Hezekiah's great-grandson, sort of outshined his own great-grandfather in that he didn't deviate at all. He walked after the Lord. I mean, you, you read of even the likes of Solomon, David's own son, and that couldn't be said of him. Right, David. We're told David's heart was after the Lord's, meaning that he was in pursuant and he modeled himself after the Lord. Right. You come to Solomon while he was the greatest king in the earthly sense of materialism. His heart wasn't loyal to the Lord. He created places of idolatry for his wives. You know, he followed after women. Uh, in a way that he should have pursued the Lord. Now, there are a number of things about Solomon that were not exemplary. You know, here, we're being told of Josiah, this guy wouldn't deviate left or right. He's like David, heart loyal to the Lord. You know, he's quite a remarkable thing. And at the same time, many ways, Hezekiah was righteous, 
king and fulfilled these things also. So 2 Kings chapter 18, beginning at verse 3, Hezekiah did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. Dropping down to verse 5, he trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord, he did not depart from following him, he kept his commandment, which the Lord had commanded Moses. A king will reign in righteousness, is what was said. Now, ultimately, Jesus is the most fitting fulfillment of these prophecies. These men, I think probably you're looking at Hezekiah. These men most locally fulfilled this promise of a righteous king or a king that was going to come in righteousness and rule the people. So in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5, we are told, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness, a king. Notice the capital K on that king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness on the earth. So not just localized for the nation of Judah. This is speaking to the whole world and how he's going to reign in righteousness over the whole earth. It says also where we're reading in Isaiah chapter 32, and princes will rule with justice. So Hezekiah had many men who served with him in righteousness. Uh, they weren't sons in the sense that you know those men would be princes, but they were princes in that they had authority over the nation and they ruled with the authority of the king in righteousness. There's a, there's a great blessing in that when people, you know, like Paul is writing in the New Testament and says of Timothy that he is like-minded in all things regarding the ministry. When Hezekiah comes into the throne and he begins to rule in righteousness, following the Lord, no deviation, and he's surrounded by men who are like-minded who have the same course and mentality, that lends to a unity within the nation of Judah that really strengthens it. You know, those names, Second uh, Kings chapter 19, verse 2, then Hezekiah sent Eliakim, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priest covered with sackcloth to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. These people were all seeking the Lord all you know, conferring with the prophet Isaiah for God's wisdom. And, you know, that's a wonderful thing when you can see the leadership of a nation that's heart is turned towards the Lord. That's a really interesting you know, turn of events there. As in that, Hezekiah as a type of Jesus, Jesus will have those who rule with him as princes. You consider 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, that says, but you are a chosen generation, speaking to us, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into this or his marvelous light. Revelation 5.10, again referring to us, says that he had made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. This is one of the biggest reasons that I say all Christians should seek sobriety and abstinence from drugs and alcohol. 
because it's not for kings. It's not for priests to drink wine and intoxicating drink, lest they forget the word of God and pervert justice. Memory is the number one thing that's affected in all drug use and all alcohol use. Forgetfulness is created. We need to retain, remember and retain God's word. And so that we will be ready in season and out of season to share it with people, right? I'm so frustrated when, you know, somebody you know, has to say, and I just can't hardly even remember how the verse went, let alone where it was located. It bugs the stuffing out of me. My feeble mind. I, you know, if, I, if I'm already this weak and frail and struggle this much, I don't need to add to that. You know what I'm saying? I don't need to add anything to my forgetfulness. There's a reason my car keys hang on my hip or on the thing at the house. You know what I'm saying? Because if, if they're not in one of those two locations, I have no idea where they are. Probably in the bottom of a volcano for all I know. You know I just, it's crazy. I still have a set of keys. When I first moved into the house that we're in right now, I didn't uh, put them where they belong, and they are still missing. The whole set. You know, I was just there doing like lawn work and stuff. I had to call James. He came out, spare set of keys, hooked me up, and got me home. Yeah, there was a key to everything on that key ring, and they are gone forever. No idea where they are. I probably set them down somewhere and ran them over with a lawnmower. They're 500 yards out in the woods somewhere, for all I know. Or I raked them up, threw them away. I don't need to be any more forgetful. I need to have sharp mind as I can. You know, you're thinking you're pretty dull, so got to sharpen up here. 32.2, we made it a long ways into the chapter. A man will be as a hiding place from the wind and a cover from the tempest as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. The eyes of those who see will not be dim. The ears of those who hear will listen. Also, the heart of the rash will understand knowledge and the tongue of the stammerers will be ready to speak plainly when this righteousness comes it is going to convert everything in the land you know a people who were out exposed to their enemies fearful looking to egypt for help and shelter and strength you know a man will be a hiding place from the wind once righteousness is brought into the country you'll be able to rely upon other people for protection and preservation and cover from the tempest. You know, the parched, dry state of existence spiritually and physically will be converted into rivers of water. Everything changes when a people will turn their hearts to the Lord. You know, the Lord told this. Often when people read the Ten Commandments and they read, you know, like, you know, honor your father and mother that you may live long in the land. We will quote and say, see, that is a, a promise that you'll have a long life, you know, and, we, and, and that's not entirely incorrect. What the Lord was literally saying, literally saying is, I brought you into this land. You were captives and I, br I brought Abraham into the land and then you ended up in Egypt and now I'm bringing you back into the land. And you're going to be in the land. If you honor your mother and father, you'll be able to stay here a long time. You do not, I'm going to put you out of the land. Assyria has just taken Israel away captive. Why? 
Well, because they've rebelled against God and they don't honor their mother and their fathers. Everything has broken down. The family is shot. The foundations are laid bare. And God is saying, okay, time for you to get out of my land. This is my land, not your land. You want to stay here? You want to live in the land for a long time? Then you got to get back to the core principles of righteousness that would cause you to honor your mother and father. Cause you to be a blessing in the land. As a shadow of a great rock, in a weary land. The eyes of those who will see will not be dim. He's more speaking in regard to the word of God and understanding than he is vision. Certainly vision is going to be restored. Health is going to be restored. You know, Jesus, this ultimate righteous king comes, right? He's giving vision to the blind over and over again, sending them away healed, right? He's just speaking to some, right? He's spitting in other people's eyes. He's spitting and making mud and putting that in their eyes. He's just healing left and right, however he sees fit. His purposes are being accomplished. You know, if you had dim eyes previously, if you had deaf ears, you'll be able to hear. This is more about the Word of God, right? There was a time maybe where you didn't walk with the Lord. You tried to read the Bible, you tried to go to church, and you're like, yeah, I'm not interested. Then you surrender your heart. You pray that prayer. I want to be born again. Make me a child of God. Give me your Holy Spirit. And wow, like a whole bunch of things start to make sense. You read the book and you're like, good grief, this is written for me. You see all kinds of things you didn't see before. You hear all kinds of things you didn't hear before, right? I mean, you're you're like in the same church you were before. You're like, I didn't know this place was so interesting. The heart's been converted. And this is exactly what the Lord is saying. The heart of the rash will understand knowledge. You know, the tongue of the stammerer. Oh, man, you guys, if you haven't noticed, now that I say this to you, go home and watch. Look at how difficult it is to be politically correct. People are like, um, what I mean, what I'm trying to say, is I, I, when, I talk, when, I, when I'm talking about this circumstance, they have to stutter, they have to stammer, they have to be careful, and they have to reword, and then they'll say a thing, and then they'll explain what they mean by that, and they just, they can't just walk in and say, look, black is black, and white is white, and right is right, and wrong is wrong, and that's the way it is, and everybody has to live with it. They can't speak like that, right? Remember, Jesus goes up on the mountain. And he begins to preach there, the Beatitudes. He's preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And it says there in chapter 7 of Matthew, when he finished, the people were astonished because he spoke as one having authority. Now, I do jail ministry every Wednesday night. Very often, very often, the men in there will, if they'll talk during study, one of the things they always bring up is oh yeah but the bible that's that's not what it meant or that's not you know how can we know it's been changed it's just you know over time and i'm able to say to them no it hasn't been it's not been altered it hasn't been changed it's not been corrupt they're like well i've always heard yeah you've heard but that's not true and we finally get down to what is the reality of what you're looking at this is god's word Not only did he breathe it out and make it possible, he's protected it and preserved it. So you can sit here tonight and read it as though it's absolutely true. And you can see the lights go on as we examine some of the specifics regarding that, that they're like, no kidding. And we begin to read. Last night we just went through the Ten Commandments. I mean, we read some other stuff, but the realization for them of what the Ten Commandments actually meant 
You know, they're looking at this like some absolutely black and white chiseled and stone hardcore thing. We look at it and I'm able to say to them, look, no, you got to know not only the truth of the Ten Commandments, you got to understand the spirit behind this. God, for instance, wanted you to take one day off a week and rest and be in fellowship with him so that you could prosper. And most of them are like, what? I'm saying, yeah, probably many of you or all of you at times have thought, I've got to work seven days a week. I can't take any rest. I've got to constantly be looking for the angle, trying to get more. And the, you can see like the realizations coming into their mind. Like, yeah, I've functioned like that. No, you need to invest. You need to invest in the things of the Lord one day a week. And quickly, they're like, okay, so it has to be Saturday, right? And then they get all legalistic about, you know, the Sabbath. And I'm saying, no. See, this is where we take the truth and we combine it with the Spirit, right? Because the Sabbath was given to us. We weren't given to the Sabbath. God wants you to rest. Preferably, it would be Sunday where you could get together with the rest of the body of Christ and worship and grow. But if that's Monday or Friday or, you know, a different day each week, take a day off. Be in fellowship with the Lord. Be in fellowship with the body of Christ. Read, grow, pray, worship. And the, you can see the realization, like, no way. The authority of righteousness. When, when a righteous king comes into rule, it changes the entire environment. It changes everything that is going on. You know, these rivers of water, as we said, the hearts of the rash, given understanding, it converts a whole culture, converts the whole world, ultimately, in the end. 32 verse 5, the blessing of righteousness and integrity from the king. The foolish person will no longer be called generous, nor the miser said to be bountiful. For the foolish person will speak foolishness, and the heart will work iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error against the Lord, to keep the hungry unsatisfied, and he will cause the drink of the thirsty to fail. Also the schemes of the schemer are evil. He devises wicked plans to destroy the poor with lying words, even when the need speaks justice. But a generous man devises generous things, and by generosity he shall stand. So this is future tense, and it's a little wordy, but basically... What it's saying is no more of this calling evil good and good evil. People are going to be plainly known. The foolish isn't going to be known as someone who's wise and bountiful. You know, the miser isn't going to be thought to be a good person. When righteousness comes, when the righteous king rules, and, I, and this is simply, I'm still keeping it in the lowercase k here, you know, an earthly king. When a righteous king rules, then you'll be able to say, hey, that's sin right over there. And you'll be able to say, hey, that's righteousness right over there. I just watched a video today. A college student is on campus with his 
right to life presentation out. Maybe you've seen this. And this girl walks over and says, is all of this yours? And he says, yes. And she plows him right in the face and just keeps swinging. She nails him like four times. And she is losing her mind about, you are a terrible person. You are a terrible person. No. <laughs> These pictures depict the unborn children who have been killed by terrible people. I'm here as the best person in this environment being good and trying to protect unborn innocent lives. I'm the good person here. And in her mind, he's the most wicked person present. Doesn't even recognize, I'm committing a crime as I plow you in the face four times. No joke, they arrested her. Hauled her away. She's, she's the unrighteous, and she thinks, and, and you know for a fact, most of her college friends are applauding and going, you're the good one in that setting. Oh, you wait for the righteous king to come. There's going to be a different world. It's going to change everything, right? What is wicked is going to be known as wicked. What is good is going to be known as good. There's not going to be any more confusion. Doesn't, doesn't that whole... You know, calling what is, you know, evil good and calling what is good evil. Doesn't that just drive you crazy? Makes me so angry to hear it. I have all I can do to just keep my cool and speak peaceably. And, you know, I'm not talking about shying away, about, you know, speaking the truth. Because you just want to vent over the whole thing. It's so unjust. It's so wrong. Oh, there's a coming day. There's a coming day. For, for the nation of Israel, for I keep saying that, for, for Judah in the south, the two remaining tribes, there's a, a coming righteous king for them who's going to rule and reign and give them that righteousness presently. You know, I long for the day where Jesus comes. I do. But I pray for a righteous king now. It'd be really, really good. Yeah. This current president and his administration, he's a loudmouth. He's got a lot of stuff to say. There are some interesting things behind the scenes about this guy. You know, daily, daily Bible studies in the White House. It's pretty interesting, you know. Attends when he can, encourages his staff to be there every day that they can if they want to be. That's a good change. You know what I'm saying? There are good things. There are good things. There, are, there are other things I'd like to make good, but nobody's put me in charge. So, you know, I pray from here. I pray for that righteous king. Pray for the righteousness to continue to grow. You know, you remember when he was criticized in the campaign for saying one Corinthians, and everybody's like, "Ah, oh, this guy claims to be a Christian, doesn't even know it's First Corinthians." Give me a break. He quoted First Corinthians, folks. Anybody here like Alistair Begg, right? Remember the old Scotsman, Alistair? Yeah, he, he refers to it as 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, you know. So consider <laughs> one of the greatest biblical scholars of our day also refers to it as 1 Corinthians. I'm just saying. 
We'll take what we got, right? <clears throat> we could have had Mrs. Clinton. That would have been interesting. So, <clears throat> 32 9, rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. In a year and some days, you'll be troubled, you complacent women, for the vintage will fail, the gathering will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Be troubled, you complacent ones. Strip yourselves, make yourselves bare, gird sackcloth on your waist. Now, there's a couple of things about this that are interesting. I don't know because he is actually referring to the whole nation of Judah. I mean, and now he's calling them women. Guys generally bristle at that. I, he's certainly speaking to the ladies of the culture, but I think also it's a challenge to the men of, hey, let's rise up. Let's fill our position. Let's fill our role. You know, I, I have had conversations with many women regarding masculinity. And, you know, we generally sort of know it's true anyway. Many women have been abused by men. Have been wronged. Been wronged. But when you get down to the biblical definition of a man and a husband and masculinity, godliness. You ask women, generally speaking, they'd say, yeah, I'm fine with that. I wish men around me would be like that. Rise up and be what God designed them to be. It'd be a wonderful thing. You know, if our culture, you know, if the women would be rise up to be women and the men would rise up to be men and fulfill what the Lord intended. More than anything, what you hear in this is, Get ready for the coming king. Rise up and ready yourself. You know, the, the vintage, this opportunity is going to slip by, is the idea. You're going to miss the opportunity. You know, you're, you're taking your ease, right? You're complacent. That can be said of the whole culture, right? It's not just women. I think more than anything, men get this way. Honestly, I think more than anything, men, right? Because women end up carrying the load taking care of the kids, having to pay the bills and do the whole thing. Because why? Man has run off, left them, abandoned them, abused them, taken what they wanted, and then just discarded. Yeah, that's complacency. That's irresponsibility. It's time to rise up, all of us. Rise up to our position and fulfill our roles in life. Lest you miss this opportunity, you know, these people understood vintage time, harvest time. You don't miss that. I mean, that's like unthinkably irresponsible. You've gone through the problem of planting and growing and tending. And now you're just going to what? Sit at the house and binge on Netflix and let it all just rot on the vine. Get to work, man. Do, you know, go out and get, what is it, in this case, the fruits of righteousness. Go get the fruits. If you're not going to, you know, you should gird yourself in sackcloth. Take all your finery off and wear the clothes of mourning. 
That's how we should ready ourselves in humility. Consider what Paul said to the young pastor Titus in chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Verse 12, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Why? Verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, our King. We should have ourselves on the ready for those coming events, those coming days. Verse 12 of Isaiah 32, people shall mourn upon their breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine on the land of my people will come up thorns and briars, yes, on all the happy homes in the joyous city, because the palaces will be forsaken. The bustling city will be deserted. The forts and towers will become layers forever. Joy of wild donkeys, pasture of flocks. All of these things that should have been enjoyed by people are going to become the habitation of wild animals. God is going to use the hardship of the Assyrian invasion to bring the people to repentance and the appreciation of his provision. They, they've had all of this at their disposal and they have not thanked the Lord. They haven't functioned in a a righteousness of gratitude towards God, their king, who has provided them with these things. So now Assyria is going to lay these things waste, and it's going to be the thing that brings them to where they should be spiritually. Look at verse 15. Until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is counted as a forest. So again, the difficulty was going to last until the people repented and came to God. You know, so very often, you know, the people of God are praying, oh, just bring these difficulties and trials to an end. And God is saying, not going to happen. We're going to stay right in this position and it's going to just stink right out loud until you've repented. That's what we're going to do. Hardship is what is going to bring you to the Lord. God wants to pour his spirit out in great measure. And then he makes that statement, you know, that the spirit's going to be poured out from on high. His spirit does not come from the work or hands of men, right? You can't schedule revival. I've said that many, many times. You can't rent the tent and, you know, mow the field and put the sign out and, this, you know, June, tent revival. Just, you know, they've revived the tent. Put that up. And just, we need, we need the, the renewal, the revival to come from on high. For it to fall from God and to fill us. When that happens, you know, the wilderness becomes a fruitful field. You know, the Spirit is poured out. What was fruitless and barren is filled with life and abundance. The fruit of the field counted as a forest. When God pours His Spirit, even the things that were good in the past become more fruitful. So His Spirit is so necessary, obviously. Then in 32.16, Then justice will dwell 
in the wilderness, and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. The work of righteousness will be peace, and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. My people will dwell in a peaceful habitation, a secure dwelling, and in quiet resting places. Though hail come down on the forest, the city be brought low in humiliation. Blessed are you who sow beside all waters, who send out freely the feet of the ox and the donkey. So this closure, justice, righteousness, peace, quietness, and assurance forever. When God pours out his spirit, all the things that you see here will be present. Right? Justice, righteousness, peace, quietness, assurance forever. Those things are going to be present for all people and for us personally in our lives. That's going to be our state of existence. Now, the beautiful thing is, if you're sitting here and maybe reflecting a little deeper and thinking, I don't have that stuff. That's not going on for me. Do I not have the outpouring of the Spirit the way you're describing? Don't take it as a condemnation. Understand God wants to give it. If, if things like this cause us to recognize, ooh, I'm lacking. God isn't. He's waiting, wanting to pour out His Spirit. You know, upon us individually, upon, you know, our church, upon our community, God wants to do that, right? We're familiar with Luke chapter 11, verse 13. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Just ask, right? You know, we, as evil people, somebody says, hey, could you... Get me this, buy me this, give me this. You know, children are you know, precocious that way. They'll just look you in the face and say, you know, my birthday is coming up. <laughs> and you're like, I don't even know you. And they're like, that's okay. You can buy me a bike. You know, they're just... they don't hesitate. We're evil and we're thinking, you know, I... okay, you want the thing. I can't get that right now. I got bills to pay. Maybe in time. I'll be able to get you that. Now that I understand that you're, God has no limit to his resources. Don't think materially, right? What we need above all things is his Holy Spirit. Right? It's not as though, you know, oh God, I need justice, righteousness, peace, quietness, and the assurance forever in my life. You know, give me that. And he turns around and, oh, I'm sorry. The Holy Spirit box is empty right now. You know, in time... I'll put your first on the list, definitely. That's not his function. It's not his role. If you can look at this and say, okay, I understand. Blessings of righteousness, righteous king. I need that rule, that reign in my life. That's where I want to be. I'm lacking. Ask. Ask with a heart of admission. God, I don't have those things. I need those things. Please provide those things for me. And he will pour them out. You know, people will dwell in a peaceful habitation, it says, in a secure dwelling. Hail comes down on the forest. The city is brought low in humiliation, and they certainly were at this point. When we live in the spirit-filled life, things do not affect us the way they do non-believers. You know, the, the uh, hail that would fall on the forest, the, you know, 
city being brought low. When we're trusting the Lord, you know, we it snaps us to attention, and we have to look at what's going on at our circumstances. When the you know proverbial hail is hitting you in the head, it's like you know we're not walking around going, oh, nothing's happening. But our reaction is different. We have the assurance. We have the justice, the righteousness, the peace, the quietness that comes from His Holy Spirit. There's a difference. You know, having gone through all we've gone through recently, and myself with my health, people have, you know, over and over again said, you know, they they can see our, our, our reliance upon the Lord. And I'm thinking, really? I mean, you weren't with me when I was freaking out like a teenage girl. You know what I'm saying? But we settle into, okay, God is still on the throne. He still cares for me. He is going to see me through this. There's a different reaction, right? Right? What does Paul say about death? You know, we don't mourn as the people who have no hope, right? That applies to all of our trials in life. You know, there's that initial earthly, fleshly reaction, and then the settling into, wait a second, God has still got me. I'm going to be okay. Even if I die, it's going to turn out all right. I'll breathe my last here and breathe my first in his presence and things will actually be much improved. Waiting upon the Lord, the righteous king. You know, we pray for righteousness on earth. We pray for peace on earth. We pray for the peace of Israel. We want these things. And if they don't come, our righteous king is coming someday. And we're going to stand in his presence. And man, every passing day tells me, it's really close. The stuff that's going on, again, I forgive me for being so repetitious, but the stuff that's going on in the Middle East and Israel right now, my goodness. Chuck Smith said for decades, decades, I don't know how the Lord could wait one more year. I look around and, you know, you sort of at first say that because, you know, good old Chuck Smith said it. And you find yourself just saying it out of a real natural response. I do not know how the Lord could wait one more year. It's close. Our coming righteous king. So take heart. Rest in his peacefulness. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Father God, again, we thank you for your love and your work in our lives. Bless us. Keep us. Watch over us. Help us to trust you. Lord, help us. I mean that. Help us to trust you. It's not easy. Very easy for us to be faithless. I pray for your kingdom to come and your will to be done in our lives, just as it is in heaven. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.